All right, week number three. Let's do a real quick review of what we've seen so far. We talked about, when I first started, about a giant funnel. And that giant funnel basically starts with Daniel chapter 2, where he describes the time from him, which is when Israel was in captivity, to ultimately what we refer to as the Millennial Kingdom, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so when we looked at Daniel chapter 2, we saw that there would be these five kingdoms that he had mentioned. You'd have the kingdom of Babylon, which is Daniel's current time. You had the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. We had um, the ancient, or the kingdom of ancient Greece. We actually had ancient Rome as well, which was the time of Jesus. Then we had the feet of iron and clay, which is... In our understanding, the restored Roman Empire, which comes at the end of time. And then we ultimately had this uh, crushing rock that came and destroyed this statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And that was representative of God basically destroying these kingdoms, if you will, or the final kingdom. And then bringing in the kingdom of God, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then off into eternity. So that was the top of the funnel. And if you remember that Daniel gave us more specifics, because he actually gave us a timeline for that. He told us how many years would cover that span of those five kingdoms. And so we have what we refer to here as Daniel's 70 weeks Daniel was being very creative. Every week was actually a period of seven years. And when you do the math, which end up with is a total of 490 years that would play out in Daniel's um, 70 weeks. However, there's a slight little break in there, so they're not a total of 490 years all right in a row, because the final seven years are kind of broken off and separated from the rest. And so what Daniel told us is that there would be a period of 49 years from when... The Jews were allowed to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. The decree was given, and that's exactly what happened. We have Nehemiah and Ezra, they go back and they rebuild Jerusalem, and that lasted approximately 49 years, just like Daniel said it would. But then from that point on, there would be another 434 years before the Messiah would be cut off. That's a reference to Christ and his crucifixion. That came about just exactly as Daniel had predicted along the same timeline. If we took those 434 years from the completion of the temple, it takes us right up to about A.D. 27. Gee, how interesting is that? We know that Jesus was crucified somewhere around that period. People argue everywhere from A.D. 27 or 27 A.D. up to about 33 A.D., somewhere in there. But then there's been this gap of time. We call it the church age, which is the question marks on the diagram there. And the reason we believe that there is this gap between the end of the 434 years there and the seven years that are still in the future is because everything else has been fulfilled literally as Daniel said it would be fulfilled. So if that's the case, we would expect that his last seven-year period would be fulfilled in a literal sense. And because of the details that are given, you look in the book of Revelation, it spells out exactly what happens. We know those things haven't happened yet. There are some who try to spiritualize that, but then it kind of messes up their hermeneutic because what it does is they say, well, yeah, these things were literal, but the last is just all symbolic. doesn't make much sense. We take everything literally. So we are in this period right here, right now. What we're waiting for is this period right here. Now, Daniel gave us some more details. He even broke down that 70th week for us. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 12. He breaks that down for us, and he says that it's going to be split in half. 
There's going to be three and a half years and another three and a half years. He tells, he does it with giving us the months, 42 months. He even gives us some other little language that he uses in chapter 12, verse 7, times, times, and half a times. That's three and a half years. Gives us the exact number of days. You, you know, he kind of spells it out for us. And so he basically says that there'll be this, in that last week there, there will be a decree right up here by the Antichrist, a peace treaty signed with Israel. Halfway through, the Antichrist will march into Jerusalem, set himself up in the temple, desecrate the temple. It's called the Abomination of Desolation. When he does that, he'll cut off all the sacrifices of Israel. He'll set himself up as God, declare himself to be God. After that period of time, there'll be a time of great distress. At the end of that time, right up here, he talks about Michael the archangel rescuing Israel. You've got judgment. Salvation takes place at that point. But Daniel also mentions an extra 30 days and an extra 45 days. And we'll get into this in a little bit later. But he breaks it all out for us. This tells us the exact number of days. So once this happens, we've got a great timetable. We know the day, the time of sorts um, for all the things to play out. And so that was Daniel. When we looked at what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus tells us more about that 70th week. That's what this is. He gives us more specifics about the Antichrist that would, the, the other Christ that would come, or people who claim to be the Messiah. You've got wars and rumors of wars. You've got famine taking place and earthquakes. All in what Jesus refers to as birth pangs, the first three and a half years of that 70th week. He also mentions the abomination of desolation, just like Daniel does. And Jesus says that right after that point, immediately following that, there'll be a time of great tribulation, he calls it. That's why I don't refer to this 70th week as the tribulation. It gets confusing. It's never referred to as the tribulation anywhere in the scriptures. What is referred to is the great tribulation, or a time of tribulation that takes place after the abomination of desolation. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus says that after that happens, there'll be these celestial signs in the heaven. There will be Jesus' sign in the heaven, his appearance. And then there'll be a form of judgment. Or actually, a time of salvation, I'm sorry. We know that after that happens, we've got the return of Christ returning to earth. We've got the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And then we've got eternity going off into there. That's the way Jesus describes it. And so we see, we could overlay those if we wanted to, what Daniel says about the different kingdoms, to how his weeks lay out, to what Jesus says about that final week. And so we've been coming down in our funnel closer and closer to just talk about that 70th week. Then we did a high-level overview of the book of Revelation last week, a very high-level overview. And we saw how that fits into what Jesus says as well. But the book of Revelation gives us even more details about Daniel's 70th week. And so we see that we've got these birth pangs over here, Jesus talked about. We've got the great trib that Jesus talked about. We have the middle of the tribulation right here. These are not real representative, meaning you can tell that they're, you know, I didn't spatially do them right, but try to fit in everything. But the book of Revelation talks about the seven seals that take place. Those take place during the birth pangs and the great tribulation. And then we saw that after that, there is these seven trumpets and then the seven bowls and the way that starts out is these seven trumpets come about near the end of this seven-year period. And the seven bowls take place in the 30 days approximately after the tribulation ends. And this period here, 
we know is what's called the day of the Lord. It's when, the, when God pours out his wrath on the earth. It's a very short period of time in comparison to everything else. In fact, you know, we don't know exactly how long these seven trumpets take, but we do know that the seven bowls take approximately 30 days when we do the math. And then it told us that Jesus will return. There'll be a small period of rest, probably 40, that's probably the 45 days that Daniel talks about. This is then the kingdom, the kingdom of God. You get this period of rest here, preparation. Then you've got the millennial kingdom that starts. A thousand years are here when Christ is reigning. We see some salvation here for saints and some judgment, probably the sheeps and the goats judgment. And then we've got the final eternal judgment here before we go off into eternity. Clear as mud for everyone? Better? You know, I spent a lot of time on these diagrams just because that's the way I think. It helps to look at them. And I know you're not going to remember all the chapter and verse and everything else, but this is the way that the book of Revelation plays it out. And again, if you look at it, what Daniel says and then what Jesus says and then what the book of Revelation says, it all fits together very nicely. Now, the problem is there are still some gaps and other things. Now, today we're going to talk about the rapture and the four different views of the rapture because, again, we're kind of narrowing this down. Us believers are looking for one thing to happen at this point, and it's Christ coming back to get us as he promised. Okay? So let's talk briefly about um, the two aspects of Jesus' second coming. We're going to look up a lot of passages here. The Bible declares over and over again that Jesus will come again. And he'll come again in two aspects. The scriptures are fairly clear. One is to get us and to take us to be back with the Father. The second is for him to come back and to reign on the earth and fulfill all of the promises to Israel to reign on his, on his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And that is going to be a real, earthly, literal kingdom. So let's talk about the first part of that. It's called the rapture, the rapture of the church. Now, the English word rapture does not appear anywhere in the Bible. It's a Latin term. It's translating the Greek word harpazo, which means to seize or to catch up or to snatch up or to snatch away. Now, there are some that will say there's no such thing as a rapture because the word doesn't occur in the Bible. Well, they maybe ought to stop looking at just their English Bible because just because the word rapture doesn't occur in the English Bible doesn't mean that it's not a genuine concept. Again, it's a translation of the Greek word harpazo, which means to snatch away. And that is found and is described in the New Testament. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is talking to the Thessalonians here. They're all concerned because they think that those Christians who have fallen asleep are going to miss the return of Christ. They're not going to see him come back. So Paul's trying to assure them, but notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're down in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. In other words, what they're doing, they're concerned that the people who had fallen, their brothers and sisters in Christ that had fallen asleep, died, would miss out on the rapture. They would miss out on Jesus coming back. So Paul says, no, he's going to come back, he's going to get them. He says, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. says that God will bring with Jesus them. So when Jesus comes back, he will bring with him all their beloved who had died in Christ. Verse 16. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed or precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, that's the word harpazo, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So we see a number of things here. Jesus is going to show up, we're going to see him up in the sky. The dead in Christ will be with him. Those of us that are still alive in Christ will be caught up, taken up into the sky, says to be with him in the sky, and then ultimately to be with him forever, which means wherever Jesus is, there we will be. And that is partly the key to the rapture too, because Christ returns to the Father, which means we go with him. So we are taken with him off the earth to be with him. Okay? Now, the same word is used elsewhere. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 39. Do you remember the story of Philip? What happened to Philip? Acts chapter 8, verse 39. Is that right? Acts chapter 8, verse 39. That's the... I'm sorry. I'm about one off there. Acts chapter 8, verse 39. Remember, Philip was sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. Baptizes him. Verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord, here's the word, snatched... Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, miles away. As he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the citizens until he came to Caesarea. And so we find that same word is used of Philip. He was snatched away. So what, what do we know of Philip? He was taken away physically, in bodily form, taken away, and he showed up at another location. Okay? How about Paul? Second Corinthians chapter 12. Would you turn there with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Oops, I've got to turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says this. I know a man in Christ, talking about himself there, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was, here's the word, caught up to the third heaven. And I, know how such a, or, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into the paradise, into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. What Paul is talking about there is he doesn't know if it happened bodily and physically to him or if it just happened in some form of a trance, but he was taken up into paradise, which is a reference to where Christ is at saw things that cannot even be described or things he cannot utter here. We'll have to wait to see them ourselves someday. But the same word is used there. And Paul leaves the door open to it was either genuinely physical, I was literally taken up from the earth and brought into the presence of Christ, or it happened purely in some form of a trance. But that's the same word. The same word is used to describe Jesus being caught up to heaven, his ascension in Revelation chapter 12.5. And so all, what this word teaches us is that it is something that takes place here on earth to us and we are transported from here to be with Christ. We are caught up, we are snatched up, seized, any way you want to look at it. That is a description of the rapture. Now, Paul goes on to give us more details. He says that it happens in the twinkling of an eye, just like that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
We're going to jump down to verse 50. He's talking about the mystery of resurrection here, but listen to what he says. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning we're not all going to die here before Christ returns. But we will all be changed. Why do we have to be changed? He just said because mortal bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, we're all going to have to be changed because we're not all going to die. So what's going to happen to those of us that are still here when Jesus Christ returns? He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at that last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Paul's already told us that, right? In 1 Thessalonians. The dead will be raised first, imperishable. And then we, those of us who are still here alive on the earth in our mortal bodies, he says, will be changed. For this perishable, perishable body must not, or must put on the imperishable, or glorified bodies, if you will, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up, and victory, O death, where is your sting? Basically, Paul is describing the rapture here, and he says that we'll be changed, transformed from our physical bodies into spiritual bodies, he says, in the twinkling of an eye. That'll happen that quickly. And so he describes it the same way he did elsewhere. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us that are still alive will be transformed from our mortal bodies into spiritual bodies to meet Christ up in the air. I believe this is what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 14 when he says that, he, that, the Father, that he's going to the Father to prepare a place for us. Go back and look at that. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now, where is this place that he's preparing? It's in paradise. It's not here on earth. It's where Jesus is at. It's with his Father, he says. Okay. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Jesus says, to comfort his disciples, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. He's with the Father. He says, if I go there to prepare a place for you, I'll come back to get you. Now, I believe that's a reference to the rapture and not to his second coming where he takes his residence here on the earth, because it wouldn't make sense if he says, I'm going away to the Father to prepare a place for you there. If really, I'm just going to come back here and I'll be here with you and take you into the, you know, millennial kingdom will still be here. No, the idea there is that he's preparing a place, probably a temporary place, for us between the rapture and his return. So, the rapture is when Jesus appears in the sky to snatch us up, dead or alive, and take us, I believe, up to his father's house for a period of time. Between that and his return to earth to reign for a thousand years. Now, the second stage, this gets a little confusing because some refer to it as his return, some refer to it as his revealing, some reserve the term second coming for that. It gets really crazy because in one respect we would say Jesus' return has two aspects to it. The rapture and when he comes back to stay. What word are we going to use for that second half? 
It's easy to just call the first part the rapture. It's from the Greek word harpazo. We're good. How do we refer to that second time that he comes back? And he comes back with his saints, comes back with those who have been raptured, and stays here on the earth. Use whatever term you want. Return, second coming. But again, it gets a little confusing because sometimes when somebody says second coming, they're referring to the whole thing. Sometimes when they say return, they're referring to his rapture. It gets crazy. So I just refer to it, oops, I just refer to it as um, the return or even the second coming. I'll use rapture to refer to that very first phase. Now, at his return, it's very different than the rapture because at the return, Jesus comes back to judge the earth and to take his place as king and rightful heir of the Davidic kingdom. That's specific. He's coming back to stay. Look at Matthew chapter 25. He's also coming back to judge. Matthew chapter 25. Another way you might think of this is the rapture is about Jesus coming and getting the church. And our reward for being in him is that he's going to save us from God's wrath. So there's an element of reward there. But the return is more focused on judgment. Matthew chapter 25, we jump down to verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, those of you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and for the angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous and eternal life. That's the separation of the sheep and goats. That's the judgment of the wicked and the righteous. And when does that happen? It says here, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Probably a reference there to coming in his glory and his power and his strength as both judge and jury, if you will. That comes when we saw in our previous graphic, it comes before the millennial kingdom. It's when Jesus takes his rightful place on the throne. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 29, Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, that's the thousand-year reign, I will grant that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's a reference to his disciples, the church, if you will. Because when Christ comes back, when he returns, he will not only take his place on the throne, but part of our rewards is that, according to Paul, we will reign with Christ in that thousand-year kingdom. 
So we return with Christ. After having been raptured previously, we will then return with Christ. He will judge the sheep and the goats. He will go in and take his place on the throne in Jerusalem. He will reign for a thousand years. And guess what? We get to reign with him. And that's the promise from Luke chapter 22. We will sit on thrones. As Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 reveals, this refers obviously to the millennial kingdom. Let me just read that for you. Then I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life, and what? They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the return. That's the second half of Christ's promise to return. The first is the rapture. The second is that he will return to judge and to reign And those of us that have been raptured, those that had died in Christ prior to that, that are coming back with him, we'll all come back with him at that second coming. We will return with him. We will take our place on our thrones to reign alongside him through that thousand-year period. So that describes the two different aspects of this second coming. And so when you see the return of Christ in the scriptures, you have to kind of determine which is being talked about. You might notice that sometimes in your Bible it'll say, oh, it's talking about the, you know, the second coming of Jesus. And when you really get in and study the passage, it's not really about the return. It's talking about the rapture of Christ. And so you have to be careful when you look into the scriptures because, again, certain passages are referring to the rapture. Certain passages are referring to the return of Christ. In fact, I believe Matthew 24 talks about both. Because there's the discussion of Jesus' return and collecting the elect from the four corners of the earth. And then he talks, and then he shares a bunch of parables about being ready for that. And then he mentions the return again. And at that one, he mentions the separation of the sheep and goats and the judgment. The two different aspects of Christ's second coming, if you will. So the question is when are each of these going to happen? Um, I didn't get to check with Rod Parsley this morning, I don't have the date and time. Maybe he'll reveal those one of these days, because that's his current series right now. I know when Christ is coming back. I know he's not going to give a real date and time. I'm just playing a little bit there. But um, when it comes to the second stage, his return, believe it or not, we know when that's going to happen. Not right now, necessarily. But once Daniel's 70th week begins, we know when Christ is going to return, because Daniel tells us. He gives us the exact number of days. Which means, when it starts... We can calculate that out and know exactly when Christ will return. Maybe not the time, maybe not the exact days at a Monday or a Tuesday, but darn near close because we're told how many days it's going to be. The problem is we don't know when Daniel's 70th week is going to start. But once it starts, we'll know. Once it starts, we'll know when the abomination of desolation is going to occur because we're told it happens right smack dab in the middle. We're told when the Great Tribulation is going to start, so we'll be able to figure that out. And then lastly, we'll know when Jesus is going to return because he comes at the end of that. Now, what about when it comes to the rapture? That is not so clear. Um, the Bible describes the rapture at least 20 different times, as best I can tell. Um, but every single time it's talked about, it's a little cloudy as to the timing of it. In fact, there's a reason for that. Jesus himself, when he was referring to coming back to get the church and a lot of the things that would begin Daniel's 70th week. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of God, nor the Father alone. In other words, when Jesus was here on earth, that was Mark chapter 13, by the way, 
when Jesus was here on earth, he didn't know when the Father was going to send him back to rapture the church. Remember, when Jesus came, he suspended the use of some of his attributes. Didn't give them up, but didn't use them. And so there were things Jesus didn't know while he was here on earth. The only one who knew was the Father. Now, that may be different today with Jesus in heaven, with the Father. He may know the Father's plan on this, but he didn't know it while he was here. So he says, no one knows that day. Not even the Son of God, the Father alone, knows that because he hadn't revealed it. All we know is that it's related to the 70th week of Daniel. And that's where the debate lies. Um, The church has wrestled with the timing of the rapture for the last 2,000 years. They've debated when. They've argued. They've disassociated. They've cast some people out. They've called others apostates. All because of their viewpoint. And you know what? It's been somewhat in flux. And I know people don't like to hear that. But I've likened this before to it's kind of like a puzzle. The Lord doesn't give us every piece of the puzzle right out of the box. Did he give Adam and Eve the whole entire puzzle for his redemptive plan? No. Did he give Abraham all the pieces of the puzzle? No. Did he give Moses? Did he give Daniel all the pieces of the puzzle? No. We get more and more of the pieces of the puzzle as time goes by, but without all the pieces, it's really hard sometimes. Now, the puzzle may be in some sections, very well-developed, where you get a really clear picture of some part of that puzzle because all the pieces are there, but then there's a piece missing here and a piece missing here, and maybe that part of the puzzle isn't quite as well-defined. The Father keeps some of those pieces for himself. And so the rapture kind of fits into that category where it's not quite as clear, but I think there's enough in the Scriptures to give us a general outline, an idea. I think right down to a specific point within Daniel's 70th week. But again, is that two years from now? Is it 10 years from now? Is it 45 years from now? Is it 2126 AD? We don't know. Because God has chosen not to do that. He didn't do what Daniel did. It's 490 years before Messiah gets cut off. The Lord didn't do that for us. So, we're going to talk about the four different views of the rapture because this is what the church has dealt with. We're going to break this down for you. What I'll do is I'll tell you what the tenets are of it. And then I'm going to tell you what I think the problems are with it. Because I think we can rule some out pretty easily. Okay? The first one is post-tribulationism. This one is probably right now the most common because it's popular among non-evangelical denominations. The evangelical church, folks, is not the largest group of Christians in the world. There are more Protestants that are non-evangelicals than there are evangelicals. And so this is probably the most popular in terms of a certain number of people that hold to it. That doesn't make it right. It's just that's the way that it is. Alright? So post-tribulation, what it basically teaches is that there's no separate rapture. That the rapture and the second coming happen at the exact same time. In fact, I like to refer to it as the yo-yo return. Because there's not really a separate rapture. When Christ comes back to take his seat on the throne, we kind of go up and we just come right back down with him. Okay? Because what the post-tribulation rapture teaches is that this whole, 70, this whole 70th week of Daniel... Okay, is the whole seven years, obviously. You know, some people refer to it as a trib, but that whole period of time is the wrath of Satan. Okay, that's the way they view that. It's all the wrath of Satan. That's the great tribulation that Jesus described. And what they claim is that we're all here during this time. Jesus comes back, raptures us at the end, and comes right back down. And then the day of the Lord, the wrath part of God, not Satan, but the wrath of God, happens in a literal 
24-hour period. It's like that. Okay? So the bulls, the trumpets, all of that happens. It's just 24 hours. It's done. Okay? And what they argue is that during that 70th week of Daniel, we are here, but God just totally protects us. We don't have to face any of Satan's wrath or anything else. God just protects us during that period of time. Now, here's the problems that I see with that view. Um, I don't think the scriptures support that all of that 70th week of Daniel is the wrath of Satan. You know, that's kind of a weird position because all of that, they say, is just the work of Satan during that whole tribulation period, that seven years. The scriptures don't really, I think, support that very well when you look at it. In fact, um, you're going to see a, a more complicated diagram when we get to next week where you can kind of see where I believe the book of Revelation shows where God's wrath starts, and it actually starts within that seven-year period. And I think that um, the scriptures probably bear that out pretty well. And so this idea that that whole entire period of time is just the wrath of Satan, God has no part in it, um, I don't think fits very well. Another major problem with this view is that, um, remember, we don't know when the rapture happens, right? Even Jesus said that. Well, if the rapture happens at the end of Daniel's 70th week, how many days and years is it from when it starts? Daniel tells us how many days? 1,260 days? Wouldn't we know when the rapture is going to happen? But Jesus says we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. But with this view, we know exactly when the rapture is going to happen because we can count the days. When, when Antichrist is, you know, comes about and signs his peace treaty with Israel right here, we can start going, okay, ticking the days. And we'll know the day that will return, 1261. He'll all of a sudden appear. That's a huge problem for this view. Another problem for this view, this is one we brought up in, when I was in seminary. One of the guys in class asked the professor, he said, so with this view, we know that right here at the end, I, can, I should have had a point, better pointer, but right here, this is where the millennial kingdom ultimately comes into play. Okay? In other words, that thousand-year reign, and what we know about that thousand-year reign is that there are glorified saints that live at that time or that are in the kingdom, meaning in glorified bodies, the Christians that have been raptured and returned. But there's also real living human beings living during that time. There are kingdoms on the earth. They all submit to Christ. But they're, some of them are dying. They're living. They're doing things. So that thousand-year reign is a literal earthly kingdom fulfilling the promises to Israel. Real live people. Well, the other thing we know is that at the beginning of that thousand-year reign, Jesus Christ judges people. And some go into the lake of fire, the others go into the millennial kingdom. If the rapture happens at that exact same time, and if all saints are raptured, all we've got are glorified saints in the, king, in the thousand-year reign. We don't have any real souls, because they were all raptured or sent to hell. So there's nobody literally living during that thousand years. It's just a bunch of glorified saints. But that's not the way the scriptures describe that thousand-year reign of Christ. So this view makes it impossible for living, saved people to get into the thousand-year reign. Because they either just aren't raptured, and then you've got a whole partial rapture thing. God only raptures some of the saved people, and the others, he says, I can't rapture you because you've got to go and keep living on in the millennial kingdom. Does that make sense, or am I clouding the issues? If the rapture happens at the end of that and right before the millennial kingdom, there's no living people left because they're all raptured. They all have glorified bodies. Not a living soul goes on into the, I'll say fleshly soul, goes into the thousand-year reign. If you have questions about that, if I muddied it for you, ask me afterwards. But that's one of the biggest problems I have with, with this view. So what's the uh, next view? The next view is what's referred to as the mid-tribulation view. 
The first half of Daniel's 70 weeks is called Satan's wrath. Then the second half, which begins with the abomination of desolation, is what's referred to as the day of the Lord. It's when God pours out his wrath. Okay, This is what post-tribulationists, or mid-tribulationists think. And then right smack dab in the middle of this is when we have the rapture of the church. So, you've got Daniel's 70th week right here. The whole seven years. The first three and a half years is just a difficult time of tribulation. And then right here is where, Dan, where the um, Antichrist goes into the temple. The abomination of desolation happens. He declares himself God. And right, probably right before that, the church is raptured and taken away. And then the Antichrist persecution happens right here. The great trib happens right here. And they claim that this whole entire period, this three and a half years, is the day of the Lord. It's God pouring out his wrath through this whole time. And then it's after that that we all return with Christ and take up our place, go into the thousand-year reign. Does anybody see what might be the potential problem with that? There's at least two of them. Do we know when the rapture is going to occur? No. But if we know, Daniel says the beginning of this is the signing of the peace treaty with Israel. Okay? And three and a half years in is exactly when the abomination of desolation happens. Well, this view teaches we get raptured right when that abomination happens. Well, if I'm living here and I see that peace treaty sign and I know the, tribula- or I know the seven-year period has started, all I've got to do now is say, oh, three and a half years. I know when Christ is going to return and rapture the church. But again, we don't know when that's supposed to happen. It's still not been revealed to us. So that's one of the issues. The other issue is that Jesus himself in Matthew 24, what does Jesus say happens after the abomination of desolation? Jesus says that that's when the great tribulation occurs, but he describes it as persecution of the church, of saints. Well, if we've been raptured, who's left to be persecuted? And that's why this group of people says, well, that's not persecution. That's all the day of the Lord. God pouring out his wrath. So we have to be gone. But Jesus says, immediately following those days, and then he describes a time of great tribulation, and his depiction is that of persecution against saints. But if we're raptured and gone, who's he persecuting? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. Um, this particular view in my mind... Um, There's just not a whole lot of biblical support for it. In fact, it is the least popular view in Christianity. Probably because there's just not enough support for it. Um, I don't even really know the history of it very well as to what brought it about. Um, But just not enough history for it. So I think we can pretty much write that one off. The next one is the pre-tribulation view. It's the one you're all familiar with. This is the most common or the most popular view in evangelical churches. And partly because of one particular book series, the Left Behind series. Um, Prior to the Left Behind series, it was still um, within evangelical scholarly circles, probably the most popular view. But the church body as a whole became really familiar. People really began to understand this view with reading the Left Behind books. And so the focus on the rapture and um, people's understanding it from the pews, if you will, really came about because of what um, Jenkins and 
Tim LaHaye um, did with their series of books. Um, what are the tenets of the pre-tribulation view? It's what we're most familiar with. Well, what this view says is that the rapture happens right before this seven-year period begins, this Daniel's 70th week. That right before there, the church is raptured, and that this entire seven-year period is what's referred to as God's wrath, the wrath of God. Now, they do generally separate it a little bit from the day of the Lord. They sort of view it as, well, this is all God's wrath, but it really, really gets bad, and that's the day of the Lord. Okay? So they kind of separate out the day of the Lord from God's general wrath. You can kind of describe it that way. And then it's after that period that Christ returns, we all come back with him. So, key tenant is that beginning, right at the very beginning is when the church is raptured, that the entire seven years is God pouring out his wrath on the earth, and that's kind of how the pre-trib position is laid out. Now, there's some other things that are critical to pre-tribulation eschatology. One of them is the term imminency. Okay? Now, imminency means that there are no prophesied events left to be fulfilled. There's no signs before the rapture can happen. It's referred to as the any-moment rapture. It's imminent. It can happen literally in, before I get the period on this sentence, Christ could come and rapture his church. That's what's referred to by imminency. It is a critical, critical aspect of pre-tribulation rapture, um, the pre-tribulation rapture. The second thing that's sort of critical to the pre-trib position is that the rapture is considered secret. Now, any of you have seen the movies Left Behind? I think they only made the first three because after that it all petered out and nobody watched them. Um, Do you remember the scene where the rapture happens and there's people on a plane and they're looking at the clothes next to them and there's clothes laid out exactly as if there had been a body there, the shirt's there, the tie is there, and you know the clothes of their shoes are on the floor but there's no person there? Um, that's kind of the idea that the world will not see it, that it'll happen just like that, and they'll be going, huh? What happened to my wife? What happened to my coworker? I see their clothes. You know, cars are veering off the road. Planes are falling out of the sky because the pilots have been raptured. Dave, you might want to make sure you travel with an unsafe pilot. Autopilot's on, yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, if the people that, you know, do the ground control stuff, they're raptured. I don't know how well that works, landing it, you know, but you get the point, right? So the two critical aspects of pre-trib rapture is imminence and then the idea that it's secret, that it just happens in a twinkling of an eye. Nobody, nobody sees it. Um, so... Let's talk now about what I believe are some of the problems with the pre-trib view. And, and these are issues that I struggled with. Um, I was taught pre-tribulation theology. That's what I learned when I got saved. The seminary I went to w- w- taught uh, pre-trib um, theology. My ordination in the Grace Brethren Fellowship, which is a staunchly pre-trib um, fellowship. So this is what I've been steeped in for, for, for almost all of my adult Christian life. But these are some of the things that I struggled with, and they are some some difficult things that have to be addressed. The first one is the problems with the doctrine of imminence itself. Remember, imminence means that there are no signs, there's, there's nothing that can happen, nothing that's been prophesied to happen yet, that the very next thing that happens is Christ's rapture of the church. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 17 with me. And this is, this is important here. Luke chapter 17 One of the things that you'll hear in pre-trib eschatology is that 
the rapture could happen today, but that doesn't mean the tribulation, the seven-year period, starts today. There can be a gap. Okay? And there's part of, partly why they have to do that is because I believe what's found here in, in Luke chapter 17, and it kind of disowns that view a little bit. But even when I had asked my pastor back home, I said, so, you know, does the tribulation start, the seven-year period, start right when a rapture? And he said, not necessarily. There could be a period of time. There could be a year. There could be months. There can be a thousand years between the rapture and between, you know, the tribulation starting. I'm like, that seems a little weird, you know. Well, Luke chapter 17. Look at verse 22 with me. Luke chapter 17, verse 22. One thing that, that, that becomes really clear in both the New Testament and then the Old when you put the pieces together is that the point of the rapture is to remove the church because God is about to pour out his wrath. That's the reason. We're taken away because God is now pouring out his wrath. Those two are linked The scriptures, as we look at, we're going to get into Revelation next week, show that those happen simultaneously, meaning the beginning of the day of the Lord, when the Lord pours out his wrath on earth, when he's finally ready to judge it, he snatches the church away. They are tied together. They are not two totally separate events that can be separated by a year, a thousand years, whatever. And so look at Luke chapter 17 with me. Luke chapter 17, verse 22 Ignore the statement above if your Bible says, this is the second coming foretold. Okay? The reason I say ignore that is because this has more likely a reference to the rapture here. But look at this. He says, And he said to his disciples, These days will come when you long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look there, or look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines on the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. When uh, uh, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So when did the flood come and destroy them all? When Noah got into the ark. Right? Noah was rescued, saved, when Noah got into the ark. Now look, look, keep going. And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, and they were drinking, and they were burying, and they were selling, and they were planting, and they were building. But on that day, when Lot went out from Sodom, what happened? It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So, on that day. You remember what happened? Lot is fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah. What's happening behind him? Fire and brimstone's raining down. His wife turned around and what happened to her? Turned to stone, right? Let's move on. Verse 30. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken. The word that's used there describes a taking to be alongside. I believe this is the rapture. Some would say, oh, they're being taken in judgment because that's the context of the passage. No, the context of the passage is rescue. Lot was rescued. Noah was rescued. 
Jesus is coming back to rescue the church. But on the same day that Jesus Christ rescues his church, judgment comes. Just like it did with Noah, just like it did with Lot. Verse 35, then there will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Left for what? Left for judgment. The two men will be in the field. One will be taken, rescued, and the other will be left. And answering them, or ask, and, and answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there will also be vultures gathered. So, what's my point there with Luke 17? The rapture, the rescue of the church, is tied directly to God's day of the Lord, the pouring out of God's wrath on earth. There's not a long period of time that is separated. So now, here's, here's the key, and this is why this is so important. One of the problems with imminence is that the Bible describes at least four things that have to happen before the day of the Lord occurs. Well, if the rapture and the day of the Lord are tied together, that means what? There are at least four things that are prophesied that have to happen before the rapture can happen. Because again, four, four things, and I'll get to them in a second, we are told that four things have to happen before the day of the Lord can start. But since we know that the beginning of the day of the Lord starts with the rapture of the church, those things have to happen before the rapture. That's just common sense. So what are these four things? One of them is the arrival of Elijah the prophet. If you've got a second, turn to Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. One of the, think about it this way. The last two verses in the Old Testament. And what are, what are we told? Chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet, what? Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, some would argue that that was John the Baptist coming. There are others that believe that, no, there is a future Elijah that God has promised before the day of the Lord. I would argue the same thing. Because it's tied to, you will know the day of the Lord is coming because Elijah has come. It's a sign. How about the apostasy of the church? Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Second Thessalonians. Remember, Paul is talking about the day of the Lord as the context of the letter. Okay, it's not just the rapture, the return. He's talking about the day of the Lord. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the first part of that, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, what? The day of the Lord will not come, what? Unless the apostasy comes first. That's a turning away by the church. So what has to happen before the day of the Lord can begin? Paul says... The apostasy has to come first. Jesus himself referenced this in Matthew 24 when he said there'd be a great falling away. That happens before the day of the Lord begins. Paul goes on and says that the third thing, the third sign, will be the man of lawlessness has to be revealed, the Antichrist. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 again, the second half. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul lists two things here that have to happen before the day of the Lord can begin. One of them is the falling away of the church, the apostasy. People's love growing cold. Jesus says it's a great turning away. 
The second thing Paul says is that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be revealed. Some would say, well, that's the abomination of desolation. I believe that it's actually, no, it's at the signing of the peace treaty with Israel. We'll know who the Antichrist is at the beginning. It'll be pretty clear. You know, Israel signs this peace treaty with this world leader with all this power, etc. I think we're going to have a pretty good idea of who it is. So Paul says those two things have to happen before the day of the Lord can begin, which means they have to happen before the rapture can happen. Because again, the rapture and the day of the Lord, the rapture is the trigger for the day of the Lord. The last thing that has to happen, although you can just note this, but Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, we talked about it last week, Jesus mentions it in Matthew chapter 24, what is the sign of Jesus Christ rapturing his church that stands above all others and the sign that initiates the day of the Lord. It's these supernatural celestial signs. Remember Jesus says you will, there will be these signs in the heaven and then you'll see the sign of Jesus himself in the sky coming back for his church. The Old Testament describes the day of the Lord beginning with these supernatural celestial signs, the sun going dark, the moon going dark. People will see it in the sky. There'll be no doubt about it. And so, Joel says that that has to happen. That'll trigger the day of the Lord. Jesus himself says that'll happen, showing his sign when he comes back for the rapture. And so we have these four things. We have the coming of Elijah, or somebody in the likeness of Elijah. We have the apostasy of the church. We have the lawlessness, or the man of lawlessness being revealed. And then we have the supernatural celestial signs. Those four things are described as happening before the day of the Lord, and therefore before the rapture can happen. What does that do to imminency? I was taught, nothing else is expected. There's nothing in the scriptures prophesied that has to happen yet. Christ can take you today. Based on these things, no, there are at least four things that have to happen. What's another problem with imminency? Um, we don't find any evidence of it in the church fathers. The writings, the, the writings of the church fathers are important to us because they were closest to the time when the scriptures were written. And so the, the, the church fathers, the scholars, the theologians, they weren't always right. Nobody will, would say that. But it's important to see how they understood and recognized things. And there is nothing in their writings suggesting imminency. In fact, most of the church fathers who wrote on the subject universally believed that the rapture wouldn't happen until after the abomination of desolation. They believed that we would face the persecution of the Antichrist. Now, some pre-tribulation theologians will quote the church fathers and say, see, they believed in a pre-trib rapture. The problem is that they're cherry-picking those statements because if you read the whole thing, oftentimes just a few verses later, a chapter later, they're describing something that's much more akin to us being here and the rapture being Later, not before. And so you can cherry pick. One of the most common ones is a guy by the name of Ephraim, which describes kind of a pre-trib style rapture, or so it's claimed. But most people believe that that document isn't even written by the guy who claims to have written it, that it's a farce in some respects. It's been highly discredited. But it's one you often hear from pre-trib opponents. Oh, Ephraim, see, it was described, the pre-trib rapture back with Ephraim, you know. Um... So, another problem with imminence is that the church fathers seem to suggest otherwise. Um, again, they're, it's not gospel, it's not inspired, but it is valuable to us to look at it. A final issue that I have with imminence is that so many of the passages that, that pre-trib theologians use to teach imminence have nothing to do with imminence. Let me restate that. 
the passages that they use that say, see, it's imminent, have nothing to do with imminence. For instance, Matthew chapter 24 and 1 Thessalonians 5 refer to this rapture of the church as coming like a thief in the night, and somehow that's supposed to teach imminence. But what's interesting is both Jesus and Paul describe events that have to happen before that happens. It's not describing imminence. It's describing suddenness. And when you go into the passages that are so oftentimes used to say, see, it's imminent, it could happen at any moment, if you really study those passages, what you find is that it's not about imminence. It's more about suddenness. Let me give you an example. The other couple of weeks ago, there was a thunderstorm, and I picked up Katie from work, and there was some cool lightning, and so then I went out and I dropped Katie off at home, and I went out and I sat off in a parking lot and watched the lightning. Okay? Lightning strikes in an instant. It's sudden, right? But there's often warnings that come along with it, right? You can see it off in the distance. You see the clouds forming. Lightning isn't imminent, usually. It's sudden. Okay? There's a difference between suddenness and imminence, and we get the two confused oftentimes. And so I would argue that one of the problems with imminence is that the Bible passages that so often are used, he's coming like a thief in the night, and a thief in the night comes imminently. No, it has to be night first. <laughs> you know? We kind of know that a thief comes at night, so there's some warning. You lock your doors, right? You turn on outside lights. A thief doesn't come usually imminently. It comes suddenly. Now, does that hold water all the time? No, sometimes a thief can come imminently. But the point is, the thieves come with suddenness. You, you know that he's going to come at night. You may not know he's coming at 2 o'clock. So you prepare, you wait, and you watch. One of the problems with imminence is it's really hard to watch. You know, we're told to watch for a reason. We're given an idea of a general time, timeline, if you will, when to look for things, what to watch for. So, again, a difference between imminence and suddenness. That's one of the biggest problems, I think, with this is that, um, and that's, and again, I mentioned through that, you know, this, this period here, it's like, you know, if Jesus raptures the church here and then there can be a huge, long delay between these two, well, that's because of imminence. It has to be that way because a lot of times what pre-trib proponents will say is, yeah, it doesn't quite look like we're getting ready for this yet because there's a lot of things that have to be in place for this to take place. Well, if Jesus is coming back, well, we've got to put a gap there then because he can rapture the church at any time, but we still have to have time to prepare for this, the world to prepare for this. It just doesn't fit. Yes. God, yes, generally that's the pattern. You go silent. And we see that in the book of Revelation. He goes quiet for a certain period of time, about 30, 30 minutes in, in, uh, between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. So, yeah. So that's one of the issues. The other issue, the other problem that I see with this, and we're getting close to wrapping this up. I'm going to do one more view after this, another 10 minutes or so. Um, another problem with the pre-trib view, I think it's philosophical and theological, and I'll just say it this way. The pre-trib view is based on the premise, we should not have to suffer during this week, Right? At least part of the week we're going to see, especially as we look at next week, is persecution by the Antichrist. And somehow, we seem to think that we shouldn't have to suffer what we find in the book of Revelation, when yet the church as a whole for the last 2,000 years has suffered horrifically. Everything described in the book of Revelation, the church has suffered already. Maybe not quite to the degree, but everything described in the book of Revelation is from a persecution standpoint, is what the church has suffered. Why do we somehow think that at some point in history God will rescue the church not to have to suffer those things? We have two entire letters written on suffering, First and Second Peter, which is all about being prepared to suffer. So many believe in the pre-trib view simply because they don't want to suffer. 
They don't want to suffer the things of the Antichrist. And so it's a very comfortable position to hold. That's not a reason to hold that view at all. And so I've got a philosophical and, and theological problem with it. We are told we're going to suffer. Jesus told his disciples that they were going to suffer because he did. Eleven of the disciples, well, ten of them were martyred. One was boiled in oil and survived, apparently. And then one denied Christ and, you know, we know about him. But my point is that we can't use the idea of, well, we shouldn't have to suffer. God doesn't want us to have to suffer through this as an excuse to believe in a pre-trib rapture. It's just not a, it's not a sound biblical argument. Now, let's move on to the very last one. And we'll wrap it up with this, but give me another ten minutes or so. The fourth and final view I want to touch on is what's called the pre-wrath view. Um, the tenets of this, um, it's similar to mid-tribulation, but not exactly. But what this view really teaches is that at the beginning of the seven, final seven years, the first half of it is Satan's reign. That's where you see those first six seals being opened. And that right in the middle of it, you have the abomination of desolation that happens. Okay? And then immediately after that, just like Jesus described, you have a great tribulation, which is persecution of the church and of Israel by the Antichrist. In other words, this is his big move, folks. Here it's, he's, hey, I'm about peace. So he signs a peace deal. Here it's, I'm now taking control. I'm God. And he begins to wipe out or try to wipe out the church in, in Israel. Okay? And that at some point, we don't know when, but at some point, as Jesus says, God has to end that because even the elect would not be saved if he didn't. So God intervenes, raptures the church, and then immediately begins the day of the Lord, which is the seven, the seven um, trumpets, and then the tribulation period ends, if you will, the seven-year period ends, but there's another 30 days of intense wrath that God is pouring out during this period of time before Jesus returns with us and we go into the millennial kingdom. So this here, in the pre-wrath view, is undefined. Meaning, it just happens sometime, probably near the end of Daniel's 70th week, but after the Great Tribulation, and it's a rescue because God then says, I'm done, I've got enough. And at that point, he puts his foot down and it is intense wrath at that point. That's the pre-wrath view. And so what it shares with the pre-trib view is that we are raptured before God's wrath gets poured out. The difference is in the pre-trib view, this is all sort of a great tribulation period and God takes us out before then. But the pre-wrath says, no, we're going to be experiencing much of this and we're rescued right before God pours out his wrath. That's the pre-wrath view. Now here's the thing. The pre-wrath view is the fastest growing view right now in evangelical circles and it's being adopted by individuals like myself who were originally pre-trib. And the reason is because the problem with our our understanding of the pre-trib view is some of the things that I've already mentioned. And this answers that fairly easily. Um, I'm a stickler for hermeneutics, which means that I want to take it at face value. And I remember when I was in seminary talking to my professor about this, one of the struggles we had when we went through our eschatology class was on, we didn't look at the pre-wrath view, we looked at the other three views, and the professor even said, boy, each one of these views makes me bend my hermeneutics in ways I don't want to bend it. Meaning, it doesn't all fit, we've got to kind of tweak things here, and they're like, this generation doesn't really mean this generation anymore, and this doesn't really mean this anymore, and 
so we were even struggling in seminary. Well, this view here, the pre-wrath view, is, a, is kind of an up-and-coming view, if you will. doesn't make it right. I'm just simply saying that this is, is um, being promoted by some guys that are great, good scholars. They're evangelicals. They're conservatives. Um, and they're, they've done some, some great work in it. One of the most prominent is a guy by the name of Alan Kirshner, um, who's done some fantastic work on this. He's a biblical linguist and a, a Greek scholar. Um, this is his whole entire focus. And um, I love and appreciate a lot of what he's done in this, in this area. Now, what are the problems with this view? I won't say there aren't any problems. One of the problems with this view is that the main complaint is that it looks at the first six seals that take place, those things that happen in the first part here, when Jesus is opening up those seals. Well, they say that's Satan's wrath. The complaint against it is, yeah, but Jesus is the one opening up those seals. So isn't that Jesus' wrath? Well, it kind of makes sense. If Jesus is the one opening up the seals in the first six seals of the book of Revelation... And there was that's a bunch of stuff happening right there. You know, the earth's being, you know, parts of it are being wiped out and you have plagues and wars and all that stuff. The complaint against pre-wrath, they say, well, yeah, but we say that's Satan's reign, not Jesus' wrath, and Jesus is the one opening up the seals. It must be his. There's a fairly simple answer for that, and I'll, I'll give it to you when we talk next week. Um, just because Jesus is the one opening up the seals doesn't mean it's his wrath, and I'll, I'll explain that in a week or so. But that's one of the complaints about it. You'll hear that from some folks. Another problem is that the word church is only mentioned in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And so the complaint against the pre-wrath view is, well, hey, if the church is there during that period of time, then how come it's not mentioned anywhere in the book of Revelation except the first three chapters? In other words, when the 70th week begins, there's no mention of the church, and they're right. Wouldn't it be mentioned if it's there? So that's a legitimate complaint. What it does mention is saints. Six of one, half a dozen of another, right? Just because the word church doesn't appear there doesn't mean the church is not there at that time. Um, the, church, the word church is not even used at the end of the book of Revelation where the church is definitely in view. Are we going to say that the church isn't there when the bride of Christ and everything comes together? So that's one of the complaints, one of the problems is we have to deal with that. Why isn't the word church mentioned anywhere in the book of Revelation after the 70th week starts? A final complaint leveled against this view is that it's a new view, which I think is legit too. You know, That's what they claim is that it's a new view. They claim that it really began back in 1990s with a guy named Marvin Rosenthal and um, some others. But that's not a reason to write something off. Um, one of the things if you, you know, when you're in evangelical scholarly circles is guys are coming up with, I'll call it, novel interpretations of passages that nobody's considered before based on archaeology and a new way to approach a passage of Scripture. And um, just because something is new doesn't make it wrong, doesn't make it untrue or unbiblical. God works with people over time to open eyes, and, and as things fall into place, that, those things are pretty, pretty common. So one of the complaints is that, oh, this is too new, it's only been around since 1970s. Not really. Um, it's more akin to what the early church fathers seem to suggest. Maybe not in detail, they didn't call it a pre-wrath, but it does seem to fit more accurately what, they, what we find in their writings. It's just that in the 1970s, 1990s, some individuals gave it a name, called it pre-wrath, and it's been gaining popularity since then. Now, I'll be real frank, and I'll wrap it up with this. Um, where do I stand on all this? Well, I think you've already kind of seen that this is the view that I'm, 
more comfortable with. I'm not dogmatic about it. What I mean by that is I'm not going to die on a hill for it. Okay? The pre-trib and pre-wrath models are probably those that hold more closely to Scripture than the other two views. So I don't accept the post-trib or the mid-trib views. I don't think they're biblical. Pre-trib, I struggle with. Pre-wrath, I struggle a little bit with, but not as much as I do the pre-trib. So, over the last 10 years or so, as I've been studying and and working through stuff, I find myself gravitating more towards this pre-wrath view because I feel most comfortable in my hermeneutic, meaning the passages that I always struggled with that were being used to prove pre-trib that sort of, to me, didn't fit quite right, seem to fit very easily with this view. Does it mean that, again, it's the one I'm going to be at 20 years from now? Don't know. But it's the one where I believe the scriptures have been leading me. Um, And it does sort of fit why we're told to look for signs, why we're told to be prepared for suffering, but why we're ultimately told we're going to be rescued before he pours out his wrath. I think this answers that. So what I'm going to do next week is we're going to get more in detail specifically on this. We're going to go into the book of Revelation. I'm going to walk us through some passages that will lay out why I believe this view is probably the more accurate biblically. You may not agree, and I'm okay with that, because again, I'm not dogmatic about it. But I think you might see some things where you go, man, that makes sense. That really makes sense. Now, it doesn't make us feel comfortable, does it? Because I'm sure some of you are probably thinking, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here during Daniel's 70th week. I like that pre-trib view. That's not a reason to hold it. Yes? Well, that's one argument that the, that, um, the post-trib people argue, is that, well, God would just protect the church. And that, that's certainly a possibility. There's a, there's a passage in Revelation where it says that, that the Jews should flee to the wilderness because God's going to protect them in the wilderness. That's probably a reference to the 144,000 that are sealed. So that's certainly possible. The question is, is that what the Bible describes? Well, what the Bible describes, the book of Revelation describes, is saints being martyred by the Antichrist. So how do you justify, well, the church will be here, but God's going to protect us but we're warned about suffering, warned about martyrdom, and the book describes Christians being martyred to where there's an uncountable number who have been martyred during the tribulation period that are now under the throne waiting and at calling out to Christ to say, when are you going to avenge us? So how do you justify, well, God is just going to protect the church if it's there with, well, they're being slaughtered by the Antichrist because that's what it describes. So, and to be real honest, we need to be prepared for that. We don't like it, but we need to be prepared for it, if that's indeed what the scriptures are saying. So, um, if you've got questions about any of this kind of stuff, you can talk to me afterwards. Send me an email. We'll put them together. We'll talk about it that, that fifth week, if you will. But um, I know it's kind of tough to digest. Like I said, I've always been kind of a pre-trib guy by default, but I found myself migrating more towards a pre-wrath view. I think it's, again, fits better doesn't require me to bend some of my hermeneutics. I've got some guys that I really, really appreciate, like Pastor Jim and Dave Plaster and my own mentor that are pre-trib. Um, I would not claim they're heretics, nor would they claim I'm a heretic. Um, so be gracious in putting the pieces of the puzzle together, right?